Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. We'll uh, begin in verse 10. But we come to a difficult passage, and it's not difficult because we get hung up on uh, what does this passage say. I think that it's quite clear what it says, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to get hung up on difficult questions like uh, grammatical structure, theological terms. Um, I think in that case, this, this passage is quite simple. Um, it, you can read through it and understand exactly what it says. But the, the question is, why is it here? What, what is the purpose that it serves in this narrative? How, how do we see this passage? The, the, the issue is, is this a good passage or is this a bad passage? And, and normally as people read through this, they'll fall on one or two sides. They'll look and say, and, and look, look how good the kingdom is under Solomon. Solomon must be a good king. Or look how good it is under Solomon. This must be God's punishment for what is happening. And what I mean by that is there, you see the prosperity of Solomon and the kingdom of Israel during this time. But is that a blessing from God? Is that a punishment from God? Where do we fall on this? If you look at commentaries, you listen, read uh, sermons, uh, and most people say, look, Solomon is a good king. Solomon is a bad king. And it is hard to be able to understand which side we fall on after we read this. So let me read the passage, and I want you to be thinking, is this a passage that represents Solomon being a good king, or is this a passage that represents Solomon being a bad king? Then we'll look at it together, making some form of uh, list of what we have read, and then try and understand and fathom why this is in here, and what can we uh, glean from this passage. So I'm going to read the whole passage in its entirety. Um, from verse 10 right to the end of the chapter in 28. And then we'll kind of break it up as we go through looking at it as a pro and cons uh, together. So hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 to 28. At the end of 20 years in Solomon, which had, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given them, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent for the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house, and the uh, Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megdalu, and the Gezer, Pharaoh king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuked rebuilt Gezer, the lower Beth Horon, and Baal Ath, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, 
and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities of, for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in the land of his dominion. All the people who were left in the, of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jezubites, who were not the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were not able were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, and they were his officers, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer, used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that the Lord built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships in Zion-Geber, which is... Eloth in the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom, and Hiram sent and the fleet his servant seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon, and they went to Ophir and brought from the gold 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. So let's uh, start to begin to unpack this passage. Is this a passage that highlights Solomon's good side or bad side? No. Uh, so let's first look at uh, good King Solomon no. uh, here. Uh, first, we see his political power. We see the relationship between Hiram in the beginning and even in the end of the chapter there. That Hiram here, he, uh, we have met him before earlier in the chapter, in chapter 5, and, and how he had brought many things to be able to help serve uh, the people of Israel. But here, uh, Solomon uh, had made this agreement with Hiram. He had supplied cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he had desired, and King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So here, the agreement that they had come to was Hiram was to provide all of these supplies for the temple of the Lord and for the house and the cypress, cedar, and the gold, which we'd seen before. And here, Solomon was to give Hiram 20 cities. But what happens is that Hiram comes and sees this 20 cities. And he comes to these 20 cities and he finds out that these cities are worthless. And he asks, what power are they? But we see his, Solomon's political power here is that Hiram has next to no power against Solomon. You know, they're merely just labeled Kabul. Hiram can't say, I don't want them. Give me back my wood my, and my gold. He has no political power. He still needs Solomon. And Solomon has built a kingdom which shows his expansive uh, diversity underneath the reign of David and now underneath Solomon. He's been reigning for about 24 years, about halfway through his uh, kingship. And here, Solomon now has political standing where he is able to not even answer Hiram. He gives Hiram no answer. 
And so we see political power and the expanse of the kingdom. And people say, see, isn't Solomon a good king? Not only do we see political power, but we also see geographical growth. You see this in verses 19 to uh, 16 to 19, where the Pharaoh king of Egypt, he went in to be able to capture Gezer, and he killed all the Canaanites in the city. And, and here he's giving it as a dowry for his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon is able to take Gezer, rebuild it, and all of these other things, other cities, Beth Horon, Baal Ath, Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all of these things. We see growth, not merely just in the land. This city here is a city which could not be taken before. And, and they, they tried, and they tried to be able to defeat the Canaanite. They couldn't do it. So here now, Egypt has come in and taken over, and now this land now becomes the land uh, promised that Solomon then builds up. But not only that, the geographical growth, but also the, the structure within the nation. He builds all these store cities. We'll see that also as well. Not only do we see this political power, this geographical growth, but also this economic wealth. I mean, you see this right at the very end when he talks about the ships there at Zion Geber, which is near Aloth and the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Eden. He, he, here, Solomon not only just grows the nation's footprint on land, but also it, it's, its impact economically by be by being able to export things and import things uh, through the sea so it's not merely he's conquering the land but also he's then conquering the sea and during this time this was a great uh, comfort a great uh, blessing for a, a nation to be able to do this this is what made Tyre such a small nation so powerful is they harnessed somewhat of the sea's power and the, the export and import of ports and being able to transport things. Again, Tyre is connected to Israel, and instead of sending all the logs and things down through land, they were able to send it around through the sea. And Solomon has been able to grow his, the nation of Israel in that same way by developing the navy a navy force in this time. And you see that the economic wealth there in that number of 420 talents of gold. Now, it depends on how you weigh those talents, how, how you know, the value of gold. The, the number that we, I kind of heard when we're reading of um, commentaries and things, it could be up to $40 million today, maybe even $60 million that's a large amount of money that here Solomon is able to harness because of his growth and expansion in the kingdom. And even that very last line, and they brought to King Solomon. Some have even mentioned that this is half of what they had. And half went to Hiram and half went to Solomon. So they have economic growth, but also military strength. You see that in verse 22. But the people of Israel, he made no slaves, and they were, they were soldiers. They were his officers, commanders, captains, his chariot commanders, and horsemen. And here, Solomon is not only merely to be able to grow the, the um, political power, his standing amongst other kings. 
his geographical sphere, his economic uh, resources, but also his military. Again, if you were to embarrass a king back in these days, it would be up to the king to be able to go and fight, even if it is merely just to be able to conquer a city in that king's kingdom, to be able to make a stand and say, I will not be made a fool of. Because what would happen is all the other kingdoms said, well, Solomon gave Hiram all these 20 cities that were useless and worthless. Therefore, we can do that. He's not going to react. He can't do anything. But here Solomon's army has grown and expanded to a point where he's able to be able to have an army to be able to defend and have peace within the land. You have peace not because merely... You, you drive out all your enemies. You have peace often because your enemies are, are too afraid to come and attack you. If you're weak and vulnerable, that's when your enemies come and take advantage of you to claim your land. But here in this time, underneath Solomon's reign, they had peace on all sides. You think about the story of where Israel came from in that time when Abram and uh, Sarai and Lot and a few people came from Haran. The stars, the beginning of a nation, a family too small really to be able to be any type of nation. And yet they grow. In Exodus, the beginning, they they start to grow and expand and Pharaoh's worried about them. But he's not worried to the point where he, he needs to wipe them out completely. He tries to wipe some of them out. But here they grow to an expanse that again, they're not able to stand and fight against Pharaoh. The Lord stands up and fights for them. And here the nation grows and they take over underneath Joshua with a conquest and they continue to grow and expand. And here underneath Solomon is a height, a pinnacle of what Israel would be. It will be one of the largest Israel will ever be geographically. It will be one of the strongest that Israel will ever be. It will be one of the wealthiest that Israel will ever be. And all of this underneath Solomon. That this small family became a great and mighty nation. On a global scale. Now why does this happen? Well they say Solomon was a good king. It grew all of these things. Well it was good because Solomon did good things. Mainly in verse 25. Where it says three times a year. Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Here, Solomon worships the Lord by celebrating these three big feasts commonly found throughout the Bible. as the height and the pinnacle of what it is. But here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, as it explained in First Chronicles. And here that they make the argument that Solomon prospers because they have a godly king. And the nation does well because Solomon is godly. And then they make an argument, something to the effect, if only we had a godly king like Solomon, then the Lord would bless us. Now, this is when the other side raises and stands up and says, you are reading this passage all wrong. Solomon was not a good king. And you say, well, where do we turn? Now, you can turn passages ahead. We know what's coming. 
But they would turn to this passage and say, this passage shows that Solomon is not a good king, but he is a bad king. And what do we see? This is not prosperity. This is wealth coming from the wicked prospering. The wealth shows the wickedness of Solomon. Well, where where do we see this? Instead of political power, we see political compromise. That same example in verses 11 to 14. Here Solomon has made an agreement with Hiram. I'll give you 20 cities. Hiram says, yes, of course. They build their houses. They give their gold. All of this comes, and Hiram comes in to be able to inspect these cities. And they're worthless, useless, nothing good. This Solomon is a man of dishonor. He is not serving Hiram well. Now, if I promised you, would you come and do this for me and I'll give you 20 cars? And we come to this agreement and you come and fulfill a service and then you come back and, well, here's your cars and I lay out 20 Hot Wheels. <laughs> or I, I, lay out, I bring out, well, they're just out of the back. Let's go have a look at them. And they're cars without wheels, they're cars with rust, they're cars with holes, they're cars that don't run. I promised you 20 cars. I never told you they would be good cars. And this is what, what Solomon, and they point to this and say, Solomon has not been honorable. He's been a man of dishonor. Not only we see political compromise, but we see geographical shrinking. And and that same example of Solomon giving 20 cities away, one person says, see, this is a sign of political power. But the other side says, well, this isn't political power. This is actually Solomon is giving the land which was given to Israelites away to pagans. This is God's land. Solomon is meant to look after it and steward it, and yet he is then giving it away to pagans. Not only geographical shrinking, but economic oppression. You see that? In verses 15 to 17. Here on this account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord, and his own house, and Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megdalu, and Gezer. Where king of Egypt had gone up and captured Gezer, and burnt it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and he had given it as a dowry for his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon built Gezer in the lower Beth Horon. And then again in verse 20 to 21. All the people were left were the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jezebites, who were not of the people of Israel. Their descendants were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves. And so they are to this day. So here the author is highlighting that Solomon is using slaves. Using them as forced labor to be able to build all of these things. And the relationship there is King Pharaoh is mentioned here to be able to remind 
all of those readers of what Pharaoh did, building up his house and his um, things, using forced labors to be able to accomplish those things. Not only that, we're reminded that the people of God did not devote them to destruction. This is the beginning of, of Judges that goes time and time again, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jesuits. In 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, the inhabitants of Megdalu and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted to dwell in the land. Verse 29, and the Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And here they're, they're reminding them that they didn't do what God had commanded them to do. This is a big issue in the story of Judges. Is these people are dwelling in this land and they're not worshiping the one true living God, but they're taking on the practices of all the other nations, and that's exactly what Pharaoh is doing, uh, what Solomon is doing. He's taking on all the other practices that we see. Not only that, we then see a military burden. In verse 19, the store cities that Solomon had in the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all the land of his dominion. Now, why is this a negative thing? Well, the warning in Deuteronomy chapter 17, speaking of what kings should be like and what kings should not be like, when you come to land the Lord has given you, again, that reminder of what the Lord has done, the Lord is the one who gives this land, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. He shall not acquire many lives for himself, wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. But here this is what we see, that he, he's growing in what uh, he does. Later on it says that, you know, that a king will just take, 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 and take. He's going to take your sons. What is he going to take your sons to do? Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, oh, First uh, Samuel chapter 8, when uh, Samuel is talking to what the king will be like if he comes and sits on the throne. is what he's going to do. He's going to take all your things. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run for his chariots. He'll appoint himself commanders for hundreds and thousands, fifties, and plow the grain gra- ground to his reap his harvest, to be able to make implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, bakers, and cooks. And he will take your fields and your vineyards or your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and all your vineyards 
and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And here, this is exactly what Solomon is doing. He's taking and taking. This is what we see at the beginning of chapter 12. When Solomon passes away and Rehoboam is there and he went, goes to Shechem. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is there fleeing from King Solomon. And they say in verse 4 that your father made your yoke our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service from your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. He says, we'll go away for three days and we'll see. We'll get to there eventually. But And here you see this is exactly what Solomon is doing. He's placing a heavy yoke upon the people of God. He's giving the land away. He's acquiring for himself many things. So people go through and they say, see, this passage points to us and shows that Solomon is a bad king. Now, again, we don't have time to be able to go into a timeline. I don't think it's necessarily um, clear here. I think clearly we see as time progresses, Solomon does uh, worsen. But what what do we see in this, this time? Verse 10 explains that this is at the end of the 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. So this is the second half of his reign. He reigns for four years, builds the temple for seven, builds his house for 13, so 24 years roughly into his reign. Now is this a a sign of all the things that he does in the last um, 16 or so years of his reign? We do not know. So is Solomon a good king or a bad king? From this passage, what do we see? And in all of this, I think we ultimately come at this at the bad and the wrong question. With the wrong focus. We assume merely that he's good or he's bad. We, we have a formula in our, our mind that if he's a good thing, good king, good things happen. If he's a bad king, bad things happen. And that's the formula we're looking for. When we come to a passage like this, we're looking for a formula like that because that's simple for us to be able to comprehend and understand. This is one of the problems with Job's friends when they come to hear Job is they've got a framework that says Job must be suffering because he sinned. And their argument is based on God is a righteous, just God who punishes sinners. So therefore, Job must have sinned. Well, Job says, well, I haven't sinned. That doesn't fit in their framework. So therefore, God doesn't deal with us accordingly. We think this is He's wealthy because he's good. Or he's wealthy to be able to teach, be taught a lesson. But the danger in this question, and the danger when we come to passages like this, when we ask questions like this, the passage then becomes about 
a person. In this case, Solomon. And the problem when we do that is God is merely a vending machine. He's merely a vending machine handing out good things or he's handing out bad things. Sweet candy or wrath and judgment. And God is merely a servant reacting to what happens in the world. But I think if we come at it a different perspective, we understand the Lord is not merely just reactionary. The Lord is actually critical. He's the one who is moving. And and the difficult part is we can't work out that formula. It's going to be hard for us to work out that formula because in chapter 10, what happens? She becomes. She glorifies God for the wisdom Solomon has given, as given by the Lord. She sees it. She knows it. She understands that it can only come from the Lord. But then what happens in chapter 11? The foreign wives, the false worship. And we think that Solomon has to be a good king or a bad king. But the tension that is before us is the tension of who will sit on David's throne. Who will rule forever? And what we see here is a shadow, not a silhouette. A shadow and not a silhouette. That in Psalm 72, written by Solomon or for Solomon from David, we'll look at this more this time, but listen to how it ends. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. amen. Even at the glorious height, of Israel in the Old Testament. What we see is faith and flaws. Faith and flaws. We see God fulfilling His promises, but He was using sinners. Up to this point, that has been the case. After this point, that will be the case. The kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 9 is not a perfect kingdom. It has its flaws and its faults. But the faults are not in the Lord's promises. The faults are in the people. The fault is in the king. Even the wisest person who has walked the earth up to this point is still not wise enough. He is still a sinful person. But that doesn't null and void. That doesn't make God's promises empty. Actually, it shows God's faithfulness. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithful, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That the promise is given to David about what God will do. 
that I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Here what you see is it is God's promise that he has made to Israel, to Israel's King Solomon, that he will carry on throughout all of this time. He will discipline them. But that discipline will not then let the steadfast love of the Lord depart from him. It's God's love for his people and what he has said in his word. And even Solomon understands this. We don't know when he wrote this, but in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, he says that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even Solomon understands there is no one good. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 3. As is it written, none is righteous, no, not one. And Paul is, is, is using Solomon to be able to explain that there's no one perfect, no one righteous, not even King Solomon. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 3 and beginning of the chapter. Then what advantage has the Jew? What value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Faithlessness. And his answer is no. no. We shouldn't be looking for someone who is perfect in King Solomon. Because God is true even if everyone else is a liar. Paul's argument as he continues in Romans chapter 3. For by works of law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here Solomon can do all these works, good or bad. He's never going to be justified based on those actions. That's where Paul continues to move and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, who have faith. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even King Solomon. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we turn to passages like this, we're always going to be wrestling, is he good or is he bad? Is he good or is he bad? What... Because we want a formula. But the formula is not through works. 
The formula is through faith. The question that we should be asking when we come to passages like this, what was Solomon's faith? Was his faith in his political power, his geographical strength, in the wealth that he had? Was his faith in his military? Or was his faith in God? Now that is a difficult question. One that a formula cannot work out. But yet we see that there is one to come who does come, who is not a bad king. He is sinless. We don't have questions of, is he good or is he bad? We know he is perfect. Christ Jesus. That's Matthew's point in his genealogy. He says the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he points and he says that we're looking at the end. Who is this king to fulfill the promises of Abraham? Who is this king who fulfills the promises of David? Who is this king who even comes through the line of Solomon? And and here, Matthew even points out the fault and the flaw of where Solomon he came by the wife of Uriah that again we look and see David as an example of, of what a king is as a heart after his uh, after the Lord but even here Matthew is pointing out that we don't want King David we don't want King Solomon we need Christ the perfect king. That's, that's the author's argument in, in the beginning of Hebrews. He explains that here Christ is exalted above all the angels. He explains that it's not the son of David found in Solomon that we are looking for. As he says in verse 5, did, which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. Where is that from? First Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where the Lord is promising that his son is found in God's son. But of the Son, he says in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Not partial uprighteousness, which might be found in Solomon, whether he's good or bad on that scale of what we might look at, but Christ's scepter of righteousness. For the Son has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you, speaking of the Son found in Christ Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond our companions. We always need to be cautious when we're reading through Old Testament passages because often what we want to see is that person good or is that person bad. But when we look at that through that lens, God is merely just a cosmic butler serving us rather God using his people to be able to carry out his means 
to be able to point to his son, the one true righteous living king who we want to rule forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.